Brick Moon Fiction presents My Atlantis by Sam French, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. I watched an orange grow heavy with frost and drop to the ground, shattering and splattered. It was iced mushed within minutes. I watched wind whip through the trees carrying leaves and birds and twigs deep into the sky and around. I don't know where they fell. I've sensed the tide rising for years and years until I felt I was drowning beneath it with my face pressed hard into the sandy, murky under. My mother threw out her back towing sandbags from my truck to her doorstep as the sky grew dark and tortured. It's years in the wilderness back there, like before, like when it was just the natives and the fountain of youth and angry, angry gods. I had to leave Florida because I had a pulse and eventually they made me do it and now I'm scraping splintering ice off my windshield in negative ten, my balls eight inches deep inside of my body, cursing, swearing, feeling like the inside of my ear is turning black and losing my sense of self in the snow. Where the fuck have I gone? Where am I? Where am I? Where? I heard my daughter is some sixty miles north, but where am I? It's very easy to visualize the end of the world as something that's going to happen right after you die from natural causes. I used to fret and fret and fret on behalf of my grandchildren. I would appeal to the logic of all around me, saying, but what are we leaving for them, those that don't yet exist? It was insurance, I suppose, and it was denial. But it was a kind of denial that we all engaged in across many platforms, and it was maybe worse than those who were saying it wasn't getting warmer at all or on any level. I thought, fuck those guys. I thought they're ruining the world for my sweet great-great-great-granddaughter and then went to bed, feeling safe in my own skin and home. But of course the world has been ending mostly since it started and at an accelerated pace since we came along. It is not going out as it began in a bang flash. It is withering. It is toenails curling under your feet. It is cobwebs taking over your garage. It is the bruise under the skin of a peach. And so, of course, I was wrong about it waiting any longer. It was happening now. It wasn't happening to my ancestors. It was happening to me. In Florida, we first started noticing the oranges, as I previously mentioned, freezing at a greater rate. We were fighting in the fields to keep them alive long enough for them to ripen and be picked and be sent up north. The workers knew it was a lost cause before we did, and we only knew it for sure when we realized they had left for some other field, some other farming way. The arbors were deserted years ago, the orchards bare, and I started to see a lot of gators in the summer, mosquitoes lining their mud-cocked, unblinking eyelids, lining up on the sides of the swamped roads, encroaching with the rising waters, emboldened by the sun's piercing rays. I said to someone once, I said, fucking A, but it seems like there are more gators, and he said, one of them ate my dog. I laughed about it later, but it seemed like the mother had sent her scouts to prepare for her invasion to pave the way for taking the land back. And I'm sure you heard about the water turning green, even though someone said that it wasn't a big deal. Not turquoise green, not emerald green, but slime green. A thick film on top of it that could not be broken by those Gulf of Mexico baby waves, strong as they might grow up to be. I wanted to cut through it with my line or with a machete or just with unwilling eyes, make someone see or do. No one really came down that winter from up above, and the entire town felt it deep in their bones and in their bank accounts. Category 5 wasn't high enough, eventually. Had to think of bigger numbers. Had to think of scarier names. No more Andrew or Charlie or Deborah. Thor, now. Ragnarok. Bruiser. Drill. Hammer. Not a joke. 
Rex. A few years passed like that, wind and lightning and rising water. And then they told us to go. Door to door they came to us and said it was time to leave. We didn't listen, of course, because many of us had no logical route up north and had good enough imaginations to ignore the water beginning to trickle in through the crack under our doors, up our walls and the wooden legs of our queen-sized beds, down our throats that could not be sealed. I get a big enough hole to see through the windshield and I begin to drive away. My car's a piece of shit and I am praying that this can do the sixty miles and change I need to find her. It's only minutes again before I'm made to get out again to clear the windshield again. It's like that for some time, and I think my dick is going to fall off onto the Dakotan ground. That would be a sight for someone passing by, or for someone to find when the ice thaws in its summer, or for someone to find thousands of years later and put in a museum. Ha! <laughs> what will they think of us? What will be thought of us? Where am... What will... There's a spot down the street from where I grew up in St. Pete, facing Bayside, it was a tiny park with a banyan tree casting shade on shallowed waters gracefully slapping a cement dock. Stingrays could be sighted. The water was murky, but when the sun cut through the leaves of the tree, it sparkled. I would go there and throw myself in to float. I would go there to think. When I died, I thought I would be scattered in the shallows. When I asked my wife to marry me, it was there. When my daughter felt the sun, it was there. Picnics, birthday parties... Games of catch where the frisbee went too far and we had to swim to it to bring it back. We had to move when I was seventeen because the homeowner's insurance was getting to be too much and at that point in time the sea had already risen to the top of the dock and sometimes it spilled over and swamped the banyan tree. I would still get my sneakers muddy in that ground. Weeks before I was finally made to leave for good I got in my boat and rowed out three miles to where the park had been. I caught sight of a small shark weaving in and out of the rotting tree's branches. I realized then that my entire childhood would soon be underwater. When I was younger, I obsessed over the myth of Atlantis, the forgotten city under the tree. I would go over maps and charts, plotting where it might be, imagining the architecture, what plates had held what dinners on the tables before it sank. I made up narratives about the final family to leave. Could they live anywhere else? Or where did they even go? When the sun was shining and I saw the shark entangled in the banyan roots, I realized my entire childhood would soon be taken over and that my school, my friends' homes, my parks would be the Atlantis for some child generations later. Would they make up stories about me? About where I went? Would they think of the dinners I shared or the games we played or even of the smallest details of lives, entire lives, lived on solid, solid ground waiting to be swept away? In the boat, I said the word Atlantis over and over and over again in prayer. Still, when I went home, I did not leave. The knocking on the door mixed with the thunderous storm cracking, and it didn't wake me up as quickly as it might have otherwise. And when they came into my home and dragged me into the rescue vehicles, they could not hear, over the storm that raged, my pleas to find my daughter sleeping at a friend's house down the street. Later I was told they took everyone from different houses to the same place and that we would be reunited soon. Later I was told that we didn't have time to stop at the first checkpoint, but that it wouldn't be a problem in Virginia. By the time we reached Illinois, I had forgotten the color of the shoes my daughter was wearing that day. I settled. I got an apartment. I got a job to get this car. I called everyone who could help and I got an address somewhere 120 miles north in a different settlement. 
I'm on my way. At this point in time, I'm wondering if it would actually be worth it to take the windshield out and just drive with the snow piling up into my car. I do some quick analysis of which would take longer, scraping the windshield or shoveling the snow out of my car once it reached my eyeline. I had been warned that when you pour hot water, it doesn't just melt the ice, but that it cracks the windshield. I had been warned to wear two packs of socks. I had been warned that there is no way to be warned for what lays ahead, whether it is the temperature or the blinding sun on snow or just the general hopelessness you will have in what may as well be a new world. Speaking of the sun on the snow, it does seem particularly cruel how it reminds me of the bay at midday. I squint the same way, and in my squinted view the water looks like snow, looks like water, looks like snow, just looks flat and peaceful and friendly. Only this is so cold. How could you ever know that the world could feel this way? How could you prepare yourself to be feeling this way? How is it? I'm twenty-five miles out and my car has stopped completely and I've cracked the windshield in my anger and the snow is piling up and my daughter may be close and I may never see her and I may never feel the warm sun again and I may never have a home again and I may never read about the recovery and there may never be a recovery and it may already be too late for all of it and there may be no children left to uncover my Atlantis and there may be no people left to tell them it was there at all or to be told that it was there at all and it very well may be that there will just be the rotten shards of a banyan tree thousands of miles under water, and that no one will ever think of it or of the children who once swung on its branches, and it may be that sun hitting the water and sun hitting the snow are not ultimately different at all, and it may be. One thousand leagues under the sea somewhere a city lies in waiting for you. Will you discover it? Will you uncover it? Will you find it and rip it off the ocean floor with a crane or a plane or a spaceship? Will you carry its memories, dripping, into a new world where they can thaw? Will you sit late at night in a fort in your bedroom with a flashlight and a book of maps uncovered at a thrift store that show the world as it was, and will you theorize and guess and put pins in where you think the city lies in waiting? Will you find the home of a father and his daughter? In it you will find a portrait, framed in driftwood, of the two in white linen clothes at sunset. Will you be a conquistador and conquer this heat? Will you reverse the process totally and save the human race? Are you Superman? Are you? I've been dreaming and I wake up with an old Native American blanket, rough but warm to touch, wrapped around my shoulders twisting on my torso, and a bowl of something like soup. The people around me seem warm and surprised to see me waking so soon. A fire is lit, not the old way, but in a metal box with a screen. Smoke is caught by the screen and turned into more warmth. My car is nowhere to be seen. You could have died in that snowstorm. I almost did. Where were you going? Into it. Don't you know storms are bad news? Yeah, but when you have to go somewhere, you can't be stopped by some storm. Of course you can. Besides, storms are everywhere now. Not everywhere. Soon. Just wait. They chased me here. They'll chase us elsewhere. Soon there's nowhere to drive where you're not driving into the storm. Well, just, you turn around, isn't that it? Turn around. I eat the rest of my food in silence, grateful for the warmth of their company. I tell them about my daughter. They're from around here, and actually always have been, and I mean always. Through the stretched strands of time, they've sat there in the snow and weathered it all. They say it is colder, and it is hotter, and they think it will get worse. I tell them about my home in Florida, and they nod because I'm not the first refugee they've offered their warmth to. 
they give me a ride twenty-five miles north when the storm has passed for now. Later, as she grows older, my daughter asks me to tell her of our home. I tell her about I-275, and she thinks it sounds made up. It's strange to make myth out of the mundane, but it's the only way I can connect the dots for her. She asks me about oranges, and I tell her about how they feel on chapped lips. She hides her face in the side of my body because she hates the thought of sour. I tell her how they tasted on pancakes, as ice cream, dripping and whole. I have pictures she drew of orange trees and banyan trees and rattlesnakes and alligators and manatees and cottonmouths and fishing boats and stingrays and cattails and gas stations and baseball diamonds and all the things that will disappear under the sea. Waiting, waiting, waiting. As my bones are bleached and lost, waiting. For someone to discover, for someone to recover once it's all been reversed, for someone to dream about and bring to life through action. Sam French is a writer and director located in Brooklyn. Originally from Florida, he is a recent graduate of Carnegie Mellon University. His plays have been produced in Pittsburgh, Florida, Martha's Vineyard, and New York. His short story, A Love Letter to the Boys of Summer, won the Adamson Award for Fiction at CMU. Sam was named a Top 20 Artist Under 25 in the Tampa area by Creative Loafing Magazine and has two one-acts published by Baker's Plays. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or visit us at our webpage, brickmoonfiction.com.